I was a child during the 1970s. I am that old. Um, and during the 70s, there was this cartoon in the newspaper. Now, for those of you that are too young, a newspaper is a thing we used to have delivered to us that we could uh, read together in the morning about the news. But there was a comic strip in the newspaper. It's actually just one frame uh, comic every time, same format every time. And up in the corner, in the top left-hand corner, it would say, love is, and then there was an ellipses, and then there were these two really oddly, dare I say, freakishly drawn male and female characters that were uh, in the actual art. And then, um, down below, it would complete the phrase, love is. Um, so, for instance, it, it says, love is when your differences don't make a difference. And then there are these, you know, these male-female characters acting it out, you know, looking uh, at a sunset arm, arm in arm. Uh, just w gross. I mean, just how sickening it, it is. Um, and, and here's what's even worse about it. I found out that comic still exists, that if you take a newspaper today, that comic still exists. It's called Love Is, and what it proves is that uh, we have an insatiable appetite for sentimental nonsense, absolute sentimental nonsense, especially when it comes to our, our understanding of, of love. Pastor Darren reintroduced us to our walk through 1 John uh, several weeks ago, and when he did, he, he used John's words uh, to show us that John was letting us know that, that love is not a feeling. Love is an action. The title of that message is love is a verb. It is an action. Love is something that is acted upon, not just felt. But the world in which we live continues to be held hostage to a notion of love that is entirely based on our feelings or entirely based on what we experience from someone else when they love us. And as long as our understanding of love remains hostage to, again, I'll say it, sentimental nonsense, we will never understand the holy ground that love really is. And today, in 1 John, we are going to see how holy love is by, by looking really at its definition when you get right down to it. So if you've brought your Bibles, or if you're at home, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10, and these verses contain what is certainly the most famous of John's words and John's writings, and maybe some of the most famous in all of Scripture. You'll see them right off. It's frequently cited as people's favorite verse when they don't know what to say, uh, but it's actually not even a full verse. It's a verse fragment. You'll see it here in just a minute. Would you stand, please, to honor the reading of God's Word? 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Now, I've just talked about how how love is held hostage by this sentimental nonsense that makes love nothing more than a feeling or the experience that we have ourselves when we feel ourselves being loved by others. But this passage of Scripture, which we are looking at, causes us to rethink in its entirety what love really is. And so here's what I want to do this morning. What I want to do is I want to give us two bulwarks, two, two pillars, whatever you want to call them, that will help, help us frame our thinking about love, because John is going to, to use two different things to frame our thinking about love. And then I want to ask three uh, what I'm calling diagnostic questions to see how we're living this out, because it's important that we understand that Scripture is not meant to just be learned, it's meant to be applied. So we're going to do that this morning. Two, two things to help us frame our thinking and then three diagnostic questions. Here's the first thing to help us frame our thinking as, as John is coaching us through love here, and it's this. God is love's source, right? Simple stuff. You could probably see that on your own. John is telling us in verses 7 and 8, that God is love's source. And, and he really does that by highlighting in, in verse 8 what he introduces in verse 7 and, and amplifying it in some way. So verse 7, he says that love is from God. Another way of thinking of the word from is to think of it as out of or flowing from. So he's saying love flows from God. And then he says, here's why I can say love flows from or is from God, because God is actual love. The, 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 the thing that is love is God. God is love. Here's another way of thinking about it simply. John is telling us that God is the headwaters of love. God is the headwaters of love. In a few weeks, we're going to be on vacation, and we're going to go visit our daughter and her husband. They live in the Twin Cities, a suburb of St. Paul, and I've already put in a request for a day trip when we're up there. We are going to take a day trip to north-central Minnesota, and we're going to go to this little lake in north-central Minnesota called Lake Itasca. And the reason we're going to go to Lake Itasca is because I'm a nerd, all right? I'm just going to freely admit that, because there is a little outflow that is no, 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 deep, uh, no deeper probably than, uh, as I understand it, your knee, and no wider, you could wade across it, a little outflow from Lake Itasca that is the headwater of the Mississippi River. And I'm fascinated with Mississippi River. When we lived in Tennessee for 10 years, when we'd come back this way to visit family or drive back home, we'd cross the Mississippi River in, uh, at Memphis on I-40. And there it's, it's more than a mile wide. It is unbelievably wide. I went to, I went to seminary in, in New Orleans at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And when I was down in the French Quarter to share Jesus, <laughs> when I'd be down in the French Quarter, I remember walking up steps walking up steps to look at the river. It was just, it was just huge. That, that, that river, which is so massive, finds its, its, its source in a little 
outlet of a little lake in, in north-central Minnesota. Everything that ultimately is the Mississippi River finds its source out of that little lake. God is love in that same kind of way. When we encounter love, maybe far downstream from the headwaters, John is telling us that we are having an experience, an encounter with God. This is what this means. This means that any experience of love, genuine, pure, unselfish love, that we experience in this world, that is experienced by anyone in this world, in any time or place, that experience love finds its source in God. And the reason for that is something that theologians called common grace. Um, common grace is essentially the idea that God bestows some gifts indiscriminately on humanity, that in His mercy and in His love, mankind experiences blessing. Uh, so, um, rain and harvest is an evidence of God's common grace. Uh, enjoying a beautiful sunrise and sunset is an experience of common grace. And the experience of love is God's common grace. That means that any Christian, any Muslim, any Jew, any atheist that has an experience of pure, unselfish love is having an encounter with the holy because God is the headwaters of love. God is love. But there's a problem. There's another one. We'll get there later. But there's a problem I want to address right here, right now. There's a tendency for people to see this first fragment, God is love, and then project on God that this is all God is. Right? I mean, we've heard that happen before. If, so, if you were to ask a person on the street, finish the sentence, God is, I'll guarantee you almost every single one of them are going to finish it with the word love. And they may not know it's in the Bible, but this is what they're drawing from. God is love. That's all God is. But there's a problem with that because John in his own writings says God is other things. God is, for instance, light in the Gospel of John. God is spirit, which he says earlier in 1 John. God is light, God is spirit, God is love. Which is it, John? Make up your mind, pick a lane. But we're not done. Paul says, Romans 3.26, that God is just. I mean, you get where I'm going with this. There are a lot of different ways to complete the sentence God is in Scripture, and great, great damage is done to a true, full picture of who God is when we limit God to only one of His attributes. When we limit God to only one of His attributes, we are failing to appreciate the fullness and the glory of who He is, and it will cause us problems if we think about it very long at all. So, for instance, if I think that God is love and only love, then hell becomes a problem. But if I think that God is just and only just, then mercy has no frame of reference for me. But when I take in the fullness of who God is and love is a part of that, then I get a fuller and complete picture of God. So be careful about coming across this verse fragment and projecting onto God that this is all you are. If you're hunting a word that you want to use as kind of a blanket term, I would encourage you 
to look at the term holy because holy tends to be or can be at least an adjective. So love, God's love is a holy love. God's justice is a, is a holy justice. Holy love meaning that it's unselfish and, and, and uh, unself-centered and, and God's justice meaning it is always fair and it is always good. Holy meaning perfection. That works. But listen, if you want to say that God is love and only love then you are misinterpreting what John wants us to do here, and you're also making your God a much smaller, incomplete God than what He really is. And so, we think of God as being the source of love. God Himself is love. Love comes from God, and that's the first way we need to think uh, about love that John is coaching us to, to see about here. The next thing that he uses to help us think about love is um, by telling us that redemption is love's validation. Redemption is love's validation. Here's why that's important. It's almost like John anticipates um, some questions. If God is love, then somebody, this person might say, needs to explain my life to me because I don't feel very loved. You've experienced loss. You've experienced reversal. You've experienced heartache. If God is love, somebody needs to explain my world to me. I mean, the world is unraveling, not just the Western world. The entire globe seems to be unraveling. We are living in a what I have called a revolutionary age, a time unlike it that we have seen in hundreds of years in world civilization. If God is love, then how do I interpret all of this? How do I know, ultimately, that God loves me, that God is love? And so John has all of this in mind, and he begins to show us, doing the same thing he did in verses 7 and 8, by saying something about love and then amplifying it. He says something about how we can know God loves, uh, loves us, and then he amplifies it. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 9. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us, was shown to us. By this we can know that God indeed is love, which I just told you. By this, the love of God, in this, the, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live by Him. And so, He says, here's how you know that God loves you, Jesus. Jesus is how you know that God loves you, which then prompts another question. Okay, well, how do I know that that is, is a validation of the love of God? And he goes on to say this, again, amplifying that point. In this, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son, reiterating what He just said. But then he adds these words, to be the propitiation for our sins. Everybody loves using the word propitiation. It's probably your favorite word. You used it multiple times in a sentence this week, right? It's one of those words we tend to hear only in church, but it's not just a, a Bible word, not just a church word. You can look it up, Merriam-Webster's, uh, and here's what you're going to find out about it. Propitiation, in its simplest sense, is the idea of satisfaction or to satisfy. So here's how Jesus is the validation that God is love. He came to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. People get nervous, I found, when I use the word wrath. And usually they get nervous because you check out on me way too quick. Listen, I believe in the wrath of God. It is a, it is a concept that is, that is baked into Scripture. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all sin and all ungodliness. The wrath of God is His reaction against sin. And if that was the only part of the story, we don't need to meet anymore because I've got no good news. However, that's not the only part of the story. God, because He is both just and love, sent Jesus to satisfy His wrath against our sin. He took our place. His life was substituted for ours. And because He's so fully satisfied, He's so fully propitiated the wrath of God against our sin, there's literally nothing else of God to visit upon us except His love. The wrath has all been taken away by the life of Jesus. And so here's what John is saying. He's saying God is love. God is the headwaters of love. He is the source of love. And the reason you can trust that is Jesus. The reason that you can know that Jesus is trustworthy is because of the cross. And so he's framed our thinking here for us. Released it from sentimental nonsense. Love is not about some kind of feeling that I have to try to chase that seems illusory. Love is is not some kind of experience I get back from being the object of someone's love. God is love. And the reason I know that God is love is because of Jesus. And the reason I know that Jesus is an example or the proof of God's love is because of the cross. And that is what love is. And that is what gives us a capacity to, in its purest form, love anyone, God included. Because of what God has done, He's given us the capacity to do that. So while love is visited on the world in a common kind of way, the fullest expression and the fullest experience of it is reserved for those who have been brought under the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We can love as Christians better than anybody else can. Let me ask you something. You think the rest of the world thinks that? You think the rest of the world thinks, man, I don't know a lot about Jesus, and I don't know even what to think about him, but those Christians sure do love people. I think in pockets you find that. I think maybe in some of your circles people would characterize Christianity in that way. But folks, Christians have become, at least in the Western world, rage addicts. Rage addicts. Constantly desiring to express our opinion and blow anybody up that disagrees with us. We become rage addicts. We will will communicate mistruths. We will mischaracterize people. I mean, it's easier to call someone word than to actually do the hard work of loving that person. So we just take the shortcut. But we've just been told God is love. We've just been told That the reason we can know that God is love is because of Jesus. And the reason we can know Jesus is the expression, the proof of God's love is because of the cross. And because of all of that, we are able to love God and He loves us. All of that works together. We should be people of love. So see, there's more here to do than just learn some stuff. We have to figure out, are we living it? So here's the three diagnostic questions that I want to give you as we kind of wrap things up here today. 
First question, am I a loving person? And to be clear, I want you to understand that I'm not asking you to ask yourself, is Derek Lynch a loving person? That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to consider personally, am I, am I a loving person? And the reason that I feel like this is an important question to ask is, again, told us in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is what John does over and over again in his book. He paints these stark contrasts, and the reason that he paints these stark contrasts is because he is trying to to help his people understand whether they are in the faith or out of the faith. And he's done numerous things throughout this book, but here he's talking about love. He says, if you are not a loving person, then you aren't in the faith because people who are sourced by God are going to have the same thing in them that God has in them. When I go to the Mississippi River in New Orleans, Louisiana, I find 100% of the time water. And the reason I find 100% of the time water is because Lake Itasca, all the way up in Minnesota, is water. So John is saying, I should expect to see love in the life of people who claim to love Jesus and to have been redeemed by Him. So the first question we've got to ask ourselves is, am I a loving person? And here's what we will all do. We'll all say, yep, king. We'll give ourselves a pass. Because I'm telling you, almost every one of us can find somebody that'll say they love us. And that's validation we're a loving person. So, we need to ask more questions. Here's where we address the second problem. I said there are a few. Here's where we address the second problem that um, this book uh, causes us to think about in terms of the expression of love. Not only am I a loving person, it asks us, do I love God's people? Do I love God's people? Do I love other Jesus followers? Everything I said about common grace and that God is the source of love is true. They're in John's words. But that's not the point he's driving home. The point he's driving home, the point he is making, the determination he is asking people to assess is whether or not we love other Jesus followers. Here's how we know that. The first word, beloved. I'm speaking to you, church. I'm speaking to you, other Jesus followers. I'm one of you. I'm speaking. I'm talking about us, the beloved of God. And then he says, let us love one another. Let us love one another. This is the reason that this, this question is so important. Do I love other Jesus followers? And the answer to that can get dicey. I mean, we live in a polarized world. We really do. And, and we live in a world in which some can take positions, affirm beliefs that are contrary 
to faith in Jesus. And what we allow ourselves to do in that is to bypass all of the evidence that this person is really a follower of Jesus and hone in on this thing that we disagree with about that person, and then we just unload on them. When I was a pastor in rural Tennessee, I had people tell me that the meanest place in the world was a Baptist church. And, and sometimes that's true. The, some of the meanest, I can tell you as an adult, the meanest, most spiteful, hateful things that have been done to me have come at the hands of people who claim to love Jesus. Now, those are few and far between. I don't want to mischaracterize my experience. But some of the most hateful, mean-spirited things that have been done to me have been done at the hands of others who would claim to be in God's back pocket. And so John is saying to his people, do you love those that Jesus has redeemed? Do you love those who are in your family? Do you love those that you're going to spend eternity with? May disagree with them, may disagree with them fundamentally, but do you love them? And I think what God would say to the American church is right now, if you love them, why are you lying about them on the internet? Why are you mischaracterizing their stances on social media? If, if, you, lie, if, if, if you love them, then why are you such an angry person at the church? For years, there has been this phenomenon of these people who claim to be prophets to reform the church, and what they do is spend more time beating up the bride of Christ than loving the bride of Christ, and I don't know about you, but it seems to me if you're going to speak that rottenly about Christ's bride, you maybe don't love her. And if you don't love her, what does John say? It says, you have not experienced the love of Jesus. So first question, am I a loving person? Then dig deeper. Do I love God's people? Which brings us to the last question. Have I experienced God's love? Because this is ultimately where John is leading us to think. Have I experienced God's love? If my life is characterized by anger and outburst and, and a critical spirit and a judgmental spirit, then this ought to be on the dashboard of our life, a bright red blinking light that says danger. It ought to be a bright red blinking light on the dashboard of the church in the Western world. The world thinks you're hateful and angry, not because of stances that you have taken that are right. That's what we want to tell ourselves. They're angry at us because of our stance on sexuality or our stance on, on life. No, they think we're hateful because we're hateful. We're hateful. And we've got to stop. Our civilization right now, as we've known it, hangs in the balance. I can't, I can't, I can't share that any deeper. I've not said that in any of the other services, but I've preached this now three times, and I'm feeling it. Do you feel me? I mean, I'm feeling it. Our civilization, as we've always known, it hangs in the balance, and we're running down paths that are dead ends 
But the world was changed before because of the otherworldly love of followers of Jesus. And we have to recover that. So if it means taking a hammer to your phone and losing your social media accounts, do it. If it means you actually having to read a newspaper, or better yet, your Bible, do it and get rid of all that stuff because our heart is shrinking. And I think God is judging the church right now in America because of it. Don't quit pointing fingers. The church needs to quit pointing fingers. It needs to look in a mirror. And it starts with me. As I get closer to vacation, staff knows this, what little filter I have begins to evaporate completely. And then you add on to that a pandemic and not being able to meet for three months, and then race relations unraveling and everybody expressing their opinion. Did you know what I prayed multiple times? And I'm not kidding. If God could give us a transcript, he would. You know what I prayed multiple times before this service, before I came out? I said, God, protect these people from me. Protect them from me. And I think we all need to be saying that to our world. God, protect our world from us. And call us back to yourself. Restore our passionate love for you. And then maybe, not by our politics or our social stances, but by our love, they will know we are His. And so, God is the headwaters of love. He is the source of love. He has proven that through Jesus and His sacrifice. Out of that, we ask, am I a loving person? Do I love God's people? And if those things aren't matching up, then I need to ask myself, have I experienced God's love? Because those that are sourced by that love, love. And if it's not there, it's a problem. Let's go to the Lord.